Good morning, everyone. Going to be reading out of John as we continue in our lesson there. And I believe it's also noted in your bulletin what page we're on. And it's on page 1053. And we'll be reading 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Lord, we just thank you as we uh, reflect on knowing you more through your Son. Father, I just thank you that you uh, um, did all that you did for us and that this season would be a time of remembering his birth and his coming and his purpose in all of that. So, Father, I just pray that you'd uh, give us attentive ears and uh, just uh, um, put the words on our pastor's lips to share. We thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. I feel like I need to step back with all you move forward. Um, Before I get into the message, if you like poinsettias, except for the fake one that's Cammie's, please take one after service. They are for your taking, or they may end up in a trash tomorrow. Um, well, I trust you all had a great and Merry Christmas with friends, family, or like us, we just hung out at home by ourselves. Uh, as Tyler reminded us on Christmas Eve, he said, um, he reminded us of an A.W. Tozer quote. He said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. He didn't know I was going to open with that uh, quote, but also a quote that goes with it, a similar uh, quote by C.S. Lewis. He said something similar but very different. He says, how God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. And I think this morning's text will help us to see how important both of these questions are. And so in our study of the Gospel of John so far, we've seen that Jesus is God. We've seen that Jesus saves. And this morning, we will see that Jesus is man. And as we continue to reflect on Christmas, we will get some good answers to these questions. What do we think about God? And what does God think about us? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your word has been given to us to answer these questions. God, that your word gives us correction on how we are to think about you and the, your word gives us guidance of how you think about us. And so God, would you be honored in our time this morning? God, would your voice be heard through my words that come out of my mouth um, and your people would respond in worship of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
So we'll, we'll break down the passage a little bit as we get answers to these questions. We'll look again at verse 14. John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so in the original language, this verse is shown as, And the word flesh became. And this is on purpose, prioritizing at the beginning of the sentence the most important words. Jesus is God. The word, think back to two weeks ago, he is eternal. He is other. He is at creation. He made everything that we see. He made you. He made me. He is God. He should be worshiped as such. The word flesh. Flesh is just as an important word here in verse 14. Put towards the front to make an emphasis that Jesus is man. Jesus didn't always exist as man. He is eternal God and he has existed forever and he added to his divinity humanity. The invisible God has become visible. The eternal God has become temporal would live and would ultimately die. The supernatural has become natural, living a life here on this earth just like you and I. And what needs to be clear is two things, a couple more heresies to be aware of that we saw a couple weeks ago to make sure we understand these two natures of Christ properly. First, he wasn't just a man who was tested and achieve greatness by acting like God. Second, his divinity didn't swallow up his humanity. He was both God and man at all times. There were times when Jesus was tired. There were times when he also knew the hearts of the men around him. He was both fully God and fully man at all times. And at times he set aside his divinity like when he was on the cross and he allowed himself to die or when he was tired and took a nap. We saw a few weeks ago in Philippians chapter two, he was in the form of God but, not, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became man, friends, so that he could save us from our sins. His divinity did not swallow up his humanity like an Iron Man suit, giving him special powers. He's God. The other heresy to be aware of is that Jesus isn't two personalities under one skin, like 50% God and 50% man. He is fully God. He is fully man. He's not living a schizophrenic life going between the two as he is living. And as one pastor said, this is a mysterious miracle, but it's at the heart of and central to the Christian faith. Much ink, as we saw a couple weeks ago, has been shed and spilled because of the Trinity trying to understand this. And the same has been done related to these two natures of Christ. Going back to the early church, the Council of Chalcedon affirmed that Jesus is fully God and fully man with two sets of capacities for experience 
expression, reaction, and action. And the two natures are united without mixture, without confusion, separation, or division. A mysterious miracle. Martin Luther said, God's nature is different from man's. Human nature is not from eternity as the divine nature is. There is one Christ, and we must say of him, this man is God, and this man created all things. So the word, flesh, became. The word also dwelt among us, the text says. And this terminology, as Tyler alluded to on Friday night, is alluding to pitching up a tent where he tabernacled with God's people. And if you're familiar with the Exodus story, this should bring back memories where God tabernacled or communed with his people, with Israel, after escaping from Egypt. It was in the tabernacle that God would speak to Moses face to face. Exodus 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. This word, in flesh, dwelt among God's people, where Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived with the same temptations that you and I live with. He grew up and he matured. He called disciples to himself. He would eventually die on a cross and he would only remain in the grave for three days and he would rise. Verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the glory that John refers to in verse 14 as we've seen glory as of the only Son from the Father. Like Moses, when he was on the mountain with God in Mount Sinai and he was in the cleft of a rock and the backside of God passed by, he beheld the glory of God. And he came down the mountain, if you're familiar with the story, and he didn't know that his face was shining for he had seen God. He had seen the light, this everlasting light that we've talked about had come into the world. God's people had seen his glory. And this glory is that of the only son of the father. And the immediately the Jewish people hearing this would have thought of Abraham and his sacrifice or attempted sacrifice of his son Isaac, his only son Earlier this year, we saw this. After the miraculous birth of Isaac, God called Abraham to sacrifice his son. And so he gathered all the things. He went to the mountain and Isaac was confused that they didn't bring an animal to sacrifice. And Abraham said this, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And I can't help but think about how the language here, the lamb and my son offered for the sacrifice. So they went, both of them, together, it says. And as Abraham was lifting up the knife, this voice came from heaven. God said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
Abraham's only son was spared. God's only son was not spared. And the son is the personal name that the father gives to the second member of the Trinity. And it's also Jesus' preferred way to speak of God as father in the Gospel of John. John was, or sorry, Jesus is a one-of-a-kind son and God is a one-of-a-kind father. And John 1.14, friends, is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. We're reminded that these things have been written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Friends, God became man. He took on flesh to die. He died and he rose, and we have seen his glory in the crucifixion where God came to save sinners. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And as 1 Corinthians 2 says, they crucified the Lord of glory. The God-man was crucified for you and for me. So what comes to mind when you think about God? Is he a genie in the sky that is supposed to answer your requests? Is he a fairy godmother who helps you to live out your dreams? Or he is, like, is he like a poor father who just gets angry? Or is he the gracious God of the universe who sent his son in humility to ultimately die a humiliating death in our place on the cross for your sin? Remember what God thinks about you. He doesn't think you are his enemies any longer. He doesn't think that you're a waste of his time. He loves you so much that he sent his only son to die so that whomever would believe in him would have eternal life. The word became flesh and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father. How does this affect your thinking about God? How does this affect your thinking about how God thinks about you? Let's continue to worship as we continue in our text. In verse 15, we get the reappearance of our friend John the Baptist. And we saw him last week. We will spend a significant amount of time on him next week, so I won't go into much detail on that. But the emphasis here is John the Baptist is saying, the son is here. He is here. God has arrived in the person of Jesus. And let's pick it back up in verse 16. For from his fullness, speaking of Jesus, we have all received grace, or we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What do you think about God? What does God think about you? From the fullness of Jesus, from the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament, from everything that we've received from him, Jesus provides grace. And he doesn't provide just some grace. Jesus provides grace upon grace. Where Jesus has defeated our greatest enemies of Satan and sin and death, and he has bestowed upon us an overabundance of grace, a grace that keeps flowing, that keeps coming. Some of your translations may render these words a little bit differently. Like the NIV, it says that we've received one blessing after another. And in California, when 
we would have winter, I would love to go to the beach because when the storms would come, the waves would get larger and larger. You would go up and sit on a cliff and you could look out on the horizon and you could see the waves rolling in and they come and then they crash onto the rocks and water goes everywhere. It is amazing. And this phrase, grace upon grace, is a perpetual and rapid succession of blessing as though there's no interval between the arrival of one blessing and the recipient of the next. Just when you think it's done, there's more. There's an overabundance of grace that we get in Christ, that we receive from Christ. The waves of grace keep crashing upon us and they will not ever stop. Recall John 1.12 we saw last week. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We receive Jesus as ruler of our lives. We accept him, we follow him, we do what he asks of us. We don't just acknowledge who he is, but in here in verse 16, we see that we receive from Jesus as well. It's the same word. We receive grace. We receive a lot of grace. We receive a super abundance of grace, friends, that can never, ever run out where salvation is an undeserved gift, a grace of God. It's, grace, it's the grace of God to give us the ability to see and to believe and to respond to the gospel when we hear it. But it's also the grace of God that God gives us to live this Christian life, to follow him when we stumble, when we fall, when we get distracted, when we get distracted by the things of the world and we forget the things that God calls us to. He's got even more grace for that too. And he's got more than enough to spare. Our sins and our doubts, we can never exhaust the amount of grace that God has for us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, his grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient for you and for me, for all of us. And this is further emphasized and clarified by John in his logical argument. He says, Jesus is full of grace and truth for or because we have received grace upon grace, for or because the law was given through Moses while grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is full of grace and truth because of all those reasons that I gave you, because grace and truth come from Jesus Christ. You see what Paul is emphasizing with these two bookends of Jesus and grace and truth. But why does he mention the law? That doesn't seem very gracious, does it? Those are just the rules that God wants us to follow, right? Well, Paul, I think, helps to clarify this for us in Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law shows us our needs for a savior. Jesus said in Matthew 5:48, "You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." 
And both Paul and Jesus show us our need for a Savior in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We cannot do it. We cannot follow the law perfectly. We can't be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. We cannot obey God on our own. For those of you who think you can, Tyler and Susanna are in the nursery. They're only here for a few more months. We need more signups. So if you think you can perfectly live this life and that we as people are perfect out of the gate, there's a lot of kids in the nursery that would love you to care for them as you learn that we're not perfect. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus. The law was to point us to Christ. The festivals were to point us to Christ. The feasts were to point us to Christ. The sacrificial system was to point us to Christ. Holiness is not possible without Christ. The law was from Moses. It's grace and truth, but it also is grace and truth to come from Jesus. The law, it demands holiness. Jesus provides a means by which we can be holy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Grace and truth point God's people to God's covenant mercy. And God is not a God that goes back on his word. He said he would send his son to pay the penalty for our sin and he did. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3 he said he would do it. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises of mercy for his people. And when God says he will forgive his people by their, of their sin by believing in the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he will forgive his people from their sins. The covenant of law was a grace to God's people as well. Do this and don't do this. Live like this because God calls you to live like this and don't live like that like you tell your kids. Don't touch the stove, the stove, the stove, the stove. It's not a means of beating people up to tell them how God wants us to live like you tell your kids to not touch the stove. It's loving to tell people how God calls them to live, to avoid the dangers of life, the danger of a hot stove. But the law is now replaced by a further gracious gift, the grace and truth embodied in the person and work of Jesus. Nothing other than the word made flesh. Look back at verse 14, and we have seen his glory. And as one commentator said, because from the fullness of his grace and truth, we have received grace that replaces an earlier grace the grace of the incarnation, of the word made flesh, of the glory of the Son dwelling now with us, now replacing the prior grace that was promised. What do you think about God? I hate the law. I hate that he gave it. I hate that he requires things of me. Do you think he's like a dad with unrealistic expectations of his children for requiring so much? Do you think he's unloving and asking things of his children? Or do you think he is so good, not only to give us the grace to show us how to live, but also the grace to live 
the, that way in the person and work of Jesus. I think this helps, section also helps us to realize how God thinks about us. God loves you. God's love is not just enough to tell you the rules, but he makes it possible for you to follow his guidance. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange where Jesus takes on our sin and we take upon his righteousness. And that should blow our minds. As Romans 2 says, Paul says that his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. How does this affect your thinking about God? How does this affect your thinking about how God thinks about you? I think that should be enough for the day after Christmas. That's a lot, but there's more behind door number three. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Friends, God is spirit. First Timothy 6 says, whom no one has ever seen or can see. No one has ever seen God, but in Jesus, taking on flesh, now we have seen real hands, real feet, real flesh, real life. And John calls him the only God. Jesus has manifested for those to behold the only God. At the time this gospel has been, was written, Jesus had already died. He had already been buried. He had already rose from the grave. He had ascended into heaven. Hebrews 1.3 says that he sat down at the right hand of God, signifying that his work was complete, that it was finished, and that there was an intimacy between God the Father and God the Son. And it's that same intimacy we see back in verse 1, where the word was with God from the very beginning. The Son and the Father with each other. Neither is in front, neither is behind. They are next to each other. Like at a wedding ceremony, you don't have one in front of the other, the bride or the groom. They look at each other. They're on the even playing field. They're equal in stature and equal in significance. And when Jesus came to earth, John says, he made God the Father known. John 14, 9 says, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. All that Jesus does and is interprets and explains who God is and what he does for his people. And when Jesus arose and, and he ascended to heaven, he didn't revert back to just being fully divine. Jesus isn't like you and I in showing humility. Well, I'll serve them and then I'll go back to doing what I want to do. Or I'll give to them and I'll go back to making some more money at the office. Jesus took on flesh and the humility that he had at the beginning of that in the incarnation remains for all eternity. Jesus will always remain as a man. That is true humility. This whole section of scripture shows us that the God who became man to save men and women from their sin, and this God is holy, and we are not. God came to die in the person and work of Jesus for our unholiness, and that should give us a desire to live holy lives ourselves and to worship. Just after 
we had that verse about Moses tabernacling, tabernacling with God. This took place. The covenant mercy and grace of God is revealed to Moses. In Exodus chapter 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And look what Moses did. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Beholding God, we see his glory. Friends, the word became flesh. The word became flesh to die in our place on the cross for our sins. This is grace. It was a grace from God to show us our need for a savior. It was also the grace of God to provide the savior for us. A God who is merciful and gracious, who forgives our sin. That's our God. And like Moses, our response should be humility ourselves and worship ourselves. The most important thing about us is what we think and believe about God. Theologians use a term called impassibility, not impossibility, it's a, with an A, impassibility. A world, it desires for people to empathize with each other. Meaning when other people feel pain, we ought to feel pain with them. Because of this, some have resisted the idea of God's love. Impassibility means that God doesn't suffer. He doesn't move and change by an outside influence. Us, the world around us. Have those thoughts crept into your mind? as you think about God? Is he your savior? If he's not, repent, believe, rest in Christ and Christ's work and faithfulness to the Father where he came to die for you and for me where Jesus is God, Jesus saves, Jesus is man, Jesus the God-man came to die to save us. That's what Christmas is about and it should be Christmas every day for us. We need grace upon grace every day. But what does God think about you? A theologian named Barry Cooper uh, this week helped me uh, when I was, stuff I heard of his related to this in impassibility. God's love is not motivated by any deficiency on his part. He isn't missing part of himself like Jerry Maguire. He says, will you complete me? And so he created men and women. God chooses to love us freely, by grace, because it's his nature where God is love. And God has affections, but his affections are not affected by an outside influence, by us. We don't cause God to be happy or mad at us. His affections are changed because he changes them himself. He chooses to love those who believe in his son. And that's good news. His disposition to us is exceedingly loving. And we cannot outneed his ability to love us and to provide that grace. 
Friends, we never have to worry that we might get God on a bad day like I'm sure my kids do from time to time. His affections don't change like yours and like mine. The fact that God cannot suffer or be swept away by changing passions means that he's able to rescue us. We have fire and rescue squads around here. They help us when we are in need. Your house is on fire. You're sitting inside them. You don't want them coming inside and saying, I feel for you. It's warm in here. I feel your pain. I'm going to sit here with you. See what happens. The firemen will die with you. You want the empathetic fireman who comes in and he says, it's okay. I'm here now. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to get you out of this mess. We want the rescuer in confidence who says, I got this. We need a rescuer who, in the process of rescuing us, does not lose himself, thus losing both of us in the process. That's the kind of rescuer we have in Jesus. That's what God thinks about you. In the process of rescuing us, it was necessary that God became flesh. He became a man with all the suffering that that entails. There's pain in the flesh, and in Christ, God jumps in to rescue us from the fire. And as the second century theologian Irenaeus says, the impassable became passable in the person, the man, Christ. Christ did not put off his divinity, but he put on to him humanity. If he did, his death would have been like the fireman who died in the fire with us as a gesture of solidarity and just utterly absurd. Jesus never lost his divinity. The word became flesh, truly human. And in taking on flesh, dwelling with us, his divine nature never changed. It was impassable. But Jesus Christ was truly and is truly able to rescue us from our greatest enemies of Satan and sin and death. He wasn't just identifying with our need and our suffering. He was taking it upon himself and triumphing over it as God. Paul asked this question in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, that's what God thinks about you. As we continue in the Gospel of John for a season, remember these words from George Beasley Murray. He says, The life of Jesus, of whom this Gospel will tell, is set in relation to the God of eternity, who is the Lord of all ages, creator of all, sustainer of all, and redeemer of all who believe in him. So friends, believe in the name of Jesus, the God-man, and what he came to do. Those are good thoughts about God believe he loves you and came to do so to do this willingly so that we would not die and those are good thoughts about how God thinks about you how does this affect your thinking about God how does this affect your thinking about what God thinks about you like Moses when he saw this covenantal grace and truth he bowed down and he worshiped God. And we'll do that now in song 
giving of our tithes and offerings, as we fellowship with one another afterwards, as we pray with one another, which we'll do right now. Father, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for the grace that we can see these words in your word. By understanding them, by believing them, we may have life in your name. God, thank you for sending your son, for humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as he took on flesh to die in our place on the cross for our sins. But God, we know that he did not remain there, that he rose and he ascended and that he is God, the second member of the Trinity. And so God, we ask that the third member of the Trinity, your spirit, would give us unction in our worship this morning. God, that we would worship you and love you in our songs that come out of our mouths and all that we say and all that we do and all that we are and that you would be honored and glorified to receive them for you are God and we are not and deserve all of our praise father we thank you that we got to do this this morning and look at your word be glorified in the rest of our time together in Jesus name amen would you stand and join us again